You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. The much-anticipated interview with Britain's Prince Harry and his wife Meghan Markle was broadcast on CBS in the US last night. It's the first interview since making their decision to leave the UK and relocate to California with their young son. They spoke to Oprah Winfrey. Meghan told her she had times when she didn't want to be alive anymore. She said one member of the royal family had concerns about how dark her son Archie's skin would be. Harry said he has now been cut off financially, which is why the couple secured Netflix and Spotify deals. And speaking about his late mother, Princess Diana, he said he didn't want history to repeat itself. I'm just really relieved and happy to be sitting here talking to you with my wife by my side because I can't begin to imagine what it must have been like for her going through this process by herself all those years ago because it has been unbelievably tough for the two of us, but at least we had each other. Oprah Winfrey's Harpo Productions released a very limited number of clips from the interview. The full thing can be seen tonight on RTE2 television and the RTE player at half past nine. We're joined now by the BBC's former royal correspondent, Peter Hunt. Peter, good to talk to you this morning. You've seen and, and read much of what was in the interview. What's your overall impression of it and its likely impact? Well, I think it will have a devastating impact on the British royal family. What's not clear is whether that will be a short-term one or a a long-term damage. The most damaging is that uh, suggestion of racism by a member of Harry's family. family. That question about uh, how dark will be the skin of Archie. This was asked of Harry by a member of his family while uh, Meghan was pregnant uh, with Archie and William told Oprah that he found the conversation awkward and he was a bit shocked. The identity of uh, the person who asked the question isn't known. I mean, Harry also goes on to express his hurt that no one within his family condemned some of the racist media coverage that there was after his uh, relationship with Meghan was made public a few years ago. But, I mean, this is a a charge. I mean, when we step back from it all, this is a family that provides the head of state for a multicultural country, the UK, and 15 other multicultural countries. And no amount of palace spin will be able to erase that stain in the coming days and weeks. Mm. And in relation to Meghan Markle and what she had to say about how low she felt at that time where she felt that she didn't want to be alive and she said she sought help within the palace and was refused help. Yes, I mean, the the spectre of Diana hung over this two-hour programme. I mean, her son was by the departed Duchess's side for part of the programme, but from Meghan's account, and we do have to stress that this is the account of Harry and Meghan, from Meghan's account, this is an ancient institution that has had pretty brutal and painful lessons imposed on it, and they haven't learnt from it. And the lesson she was making very clear they hadn't learnt was the lesson of... Diana and the mental health problems she had and the effort she made to seek help and did not receive. And now here we have Meghan in 2021 uh, on American television telling a global audience uh, that once again this happened, that she, as you say, didn't want to be alive anymore, had suicidal thoughts while pregnant, uh, asked for help, told that she couldn't because she wasn't a paid employee of the royal household, um, and even the suggestion that it wouldn't be good for the institution if she sought such help. And the relationship then between Prince Harry and his father, Prince Charles, it's very badly damaged. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it is extraordinarily badly damaged. I mean, Harry looks close to tears while he 
talks about it and uh, you cannot see how it can be recovered in in the short term i mean he talks about how he'll always love his dad how after two uh, phone calls from canada you remember they moved initially to canada while they were trying to negotiate this sort of half in half out which was never going to work sort of part-time royal part-time earning of money which was never really an option but before they moved to the to california he had several conversations with the Queen, but only two on the phone with his father before his father stopped talking to him and saying that he, he needed to put it all in writing. Um, and uh, he felt let down. And he talks about how his father went through something similar in terms of pain. And he says that his priority is to try and heal that relationship. Um, and also because, of course, the fact that Archie is his grandson. So, yes, it, it, it is a pretty devastating portrayal of how, from again, from the son's perspective, of how his father has responded to what clearly has been a very difficult time for Harry. Knowing the royal family as you do, Peter, in your work as the royal correspondent, will the palace respond to this interview? I think it would be very difficult for them. I mean, people were talking in the papers before it uh, happened that they'd be hiding behind the sofa. I suspect after this interview they've gone down into the sort of the wartime bunkers uh, in the ancient palace castle that is is Windsor. It is is a truly devastating on so many levels. The the racism charge, the the lack of care to a person who says that she was very vulnerable, the criticism of a future king... Uh, these are really hard charges and they're quite difficult to respond to. I mean, the, the, in particular the racism one, it's just a stain that is there and it will be very hard for them to erase it. I mean, the person who emerges reasonably unscathed, apart from obviously the fact that she's the head of this family and the, and the head of state is the Queen and both of them, both um, Harry and Meghan, uh, speak very fondly of her. But I mean, I suppose that what I must stress is that there will be people... Uh, who will have watched this in the UK with with utter horror, really, at how Meghan has chosen to present it. There will be people, you know, there are allegations of bullying against her, which she denies. Uh, there are people who believe that they did try everything they could to facilitate her entry into the British royal family. And they, I think they will be, you know, very, very hurt this morning, but it will be very hard for them uh, to answer back. All right, Peter, thank you very much indeed. Peter Hunt, former BBC Royal Correspondent. If you've been affected by anything you've heard uh, this morning, www.samaritans.ie or their helpline number is 116123. Government will review employment law concerning workers in the so-called gig economy. This follows a meeting between Tonishta and Minister for Trade Leo Varadkar with delivery riders who were accompanied by union representatives and immigration groups. Many of the delivery riders are students from Brazil who don't qualify for self-employed work with their visas. They would like a more secure visa status and an extension to their permission to work. SIP2 are now representing the delivery riders. Divisional organiser Theresa Hannock was at the meeting. Uh, Theresa Hannock, good morning. Good morning. Uh, we'll get to the meeting shortly, but can you tell us about the working conditions of the people that you are representing? Well, the drivers and the riders, because it covers both delivery drivers that would be um, on bicycles and motorcycles and cars, they have very precarious working conditions. Um, at the When they start out to work, they have a huge overhead before they even go to work. So, in fact, it actually costs them money to work. There is precariousness in the amount of hours they would get and the rate of pay they could come out with. We can have riders who effectively are probably working for a euro an hour, so they don't even get minimum wage. 
What do you mean by effectively a euro an hour? And Deliver uh, in a statement uh, to RT said there had been a change in the payment structure but said most riders have increased their earnings as they now get more from medium and long distance journeys and said the 1,000 riders in Ireland earn above the minimum wage and around 13 euro an hour during mealtimes. The company also said their business model had been upheld by courts in Britain who have agreed that the riders are self-employed. How much are they earning here according to your understanding? The, the the aim of this thirteen euro an hour is a very it's a very small earning slot, and it particularly happens maybe one or two hours in a day where there is a high demand. If you are ready and available for four or five hours, you may only get one delivery during that time. You may get two that there's huge distance. So when you calculate for the hours you work for what you earn, that look that nobody hits that thirteen euro an hour on a regular basis. It's like a golden shot. It's like me throwing a dartboard, a dart to a dartboard, blindfolded, and maybe once I would guess a bullseye. So tell me what happened at the meeting yesterday. Well, the, the, we had a delegation of workers um, and that worked for Deliveroo who explained the issues to the Tarnisha that they were encountering. Like, we have to remember these are a group of workers that hire class as essential workers. They've been out delivering since March. They've been working during the pandemic. Like a lot of workers that we tend to forget, the people that are in retail, all kinds of delivery workers, transport workers, and they are explained they had huge difficulties, have been highlighted in the past couple of months about security and their safety at work. They are not given uh, any insurance by their employer covering them if they're in an accident, if they're attacked, if they're robbed. Um, they have to buy their own equipment, their own bags, and it makes it very difficult. They're very concerned about their safety. They also raise the issue about the pay, about how it's more difficult to earn some of uh, the rates the delivery say are out there and available for them. And they also, really the biggest point they have is they want to be recognised as workers. They have no entitlement to any of the entitlements every other work in this country has, which is a security of employment, which is annual leave, which is a minimum wage. So what are you expecting to happen now as a result of this meeting? The government say they will review employment law. Well, it is part of a campaign. As you know, there has been moves in other EU states to recognise that these are employees, that these are workers in all of these gig platforms. The problem we have in the legislation. It's a very grey area, um, traditionally, what is self-employed and what is an employee. Um, the revenue makes an assessment, different various ones make an assessment. The platform and gig economy is here to stay and we need, as a country, to legislate a clearly defined um, legal role, uh, position on what it, these workers are. It's a flexible uh, we hear about the gig economy is a flexible economy. It gives everybody flexibility. But people who work in what we call traditional employment are also entitled to flexibility in their roles. So it is not fit for purpose, the current definition we have for employees. Um, it doesn't fit with the platform economy. And we are pushing as part of an ITU campaign that it's against this bogus self-employment. It's easy for people or for employers to determine these people are self-employed and they don't owe them anything. It is not it is not as clear-cut okay. as that. These people are denied their rights. Like You're saying to these workers, if you want to work here, 
you have to forfeit your right to an employment contract, to minimum wage, to annual leave, okay. to job security, to social protection. Theresa Hannock, Divisional Organisation, Division Organiser with Trade Union SIP2. Thank you for speaking to us. There was little surprise and even less controversy when the junior certificate exams were cancelled earlier this year. The exam is no longer a defining one for the vast majority of students and the Department of Education said the Leaving Cert exams had to be the priority. However, five schools that cater for vulnerable teens have appealed for an exception to be made for them. They say that for a very small number of at-risk students who will leave school at 16, the exam remains hugely important. Our education correspondent, Emma O'Kelly, has this report from Dublin's Henrietta Street School. OK, but well, remember we looked at that man walked home? Yeah, he got caught at the time, 10 on his foot. In a lofty Georgian building in the heart of Dublin's north inner city, junior certificate students are learning about the 1798 rebellion. Henrietta Street School caters for 20 very vulnerable young teens, some of them rebels too in their own way. Nine students here were expecting to sit their junior certificate exams this coming June. Fergus Carpenter is principal. Students here are boys and girls, mainly boys, aged 12 to 16. Uh, they would all have had difficulties in their previous schools due to behavioural issues in most cases, not all cases, but what they do all share is a level of social risk uh, due to family circumstances and so on. So it wouldn't be unusual for a student to have been either homeless or to have addiction issues uh, among siblings or parents or premature death would be reasonably common as well, unfortunately. So they come with, with a, a fair amount of trauma in their lives. And why is the junior cert so important for them? Yeah, I mean, they come having, in a lot of cases, been put out of school, expelled from second level schools. Uh, or in some cases they just refused to go or couldn't manage to go to the second level schools. Uh, so they come to us with that, that history, if you like. Our teachers do an amazing job over two or three years in helping them regain confidence in themselves as learners. And the culmination of that, I suppose, is the junior cert. It's the, it's the document that says to them, on behalf of the state, the Department of Education are saying, this is the level you've reached. You have studied, you have worked, you have gone to school, and this is the piece of paper that proves that. It's hugely important for them. Fergus Carpenter is talking about students like Tyrese O'Farrell. Down history, maths, business, art, and two And what do you want to go on to do after this, Tyrese? Uh, a mechanic or a builder. The, the whole talk with him really is around the junior cert. He wants to get an apprenticeship. And that is his motivation for coming back. If I had to go back into him when a final decision is made and tell him, listen, sorry about this, you'll just get a school assessment report, it's not good. I can't see us holding on to him. So you need an apprenticeship for a mechanic, do you? Yeah. And if it wasn't going to be going ahead, would, that, would, would you still be getting up in the morning coming in here? No. Honestly, I wouldn't. Because, like, what's the point? Tory Dunn and Brad Mulholland are two other Henrietta Street Junior Cert students. They told me of their future hopes and why regular school didn't work out for them. I wanted to be an SNA, but I don't know if I want to do that because my patience can, I can lose my patience sometimes. And tell me about your, your past school. What was it that caused you problems in that school? Too much people and just got myself into trouble. What kind of trouble? Couldn't sit down on a table or just do something like stay with you on something. Down. And what about here? Why is that? Why? You just got more attention. 
<laughs> when you get, actually get treated like a human being in her, you have respect for you. They just listen. The Department of Education, in a statement to RTE News, has reiterated its reasons for cancelling the exams. It cites public health concerns and the logistics of running junior certificate exams when the leaving certificate is, it says, the clear priority. The department also points out that junior cert students will get state certification based on in-school assessment. But none of this washes with Fergus Carpenter. We're talking about probably between 30 and 35 students sitting a total of seven subjects only at ordinary level. In terms of demands on the examination committee, it's minuscule. They'd hardly notice it. So the minister, in one very small decision that wouldn't cost her talk and also wouldn't cost her very much money, could really change the lives and the direction of the lives of these 30, 35 students. Our kids, their children at risk. They'll be making decisions of some sort around their future and which paths they take in life. Some of them, when they leave us, are not healthy paths. So we like to maximise the chances that they will make healthier choices for themselves and for society. Students here want exams. It will be a challenge, they feel, but it's one they're up for. Yeah, I won't do the exam. I can go get a job next year. Be a scaffolder. Probably be hard sitting there, but it would be important to them because it gets you far in life. And that was Tori Dunn ending that report from Emma O'Kelly. Social Protection Minister Heather Humphreys will temporarily replace Helen McEntee at the end of April when the Justice Minister takes six months maternity leave. It'll be the first time a serving Irish minister has taken maternity leave. But Ms McEntee herself said the lack of provision for maternity, paternity and other types of leave for those in public life needs a long term solution. Our reporter Fiacro Kioni has been getting the reaction of a number of women politicians. Back in 2016, when I was newly elected myself, I also had the life-changing experience, if you like, giving birth to my daughter, Juliet. So it was a pretty overwhelming time in terms of the experience of being a first-time TD and a first-time mum. And with that came the surprise and shock, perhaps, that in Dollar I was expected to provide a sick cert in terms of my maternity leave. And for that reason, I returned to work two weeks after I gave birth to Juliet. Neve Smith is a Fianna Fáil TD for Cavan Monaghan. Like many women before her, she says the current political system has made it difficult to have a baby while holding office. Deputy Smith says the news Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, will be able to take six months paid maternity leave will help to change the situation. Minister McEntee has now set a precedence to now acknowledge that it's not acceptable when, you know, a female politician has a baby that she bounces back to work the next week. However, this is a starting point and only a starting point. Where that starting point leads to is a question another female politician, Sinn Féin TD for Carlo Kilkenny, Kathleen Function, wants to see answered. It's actually incredible that we're in 2021 and we have actually no provisions for women to take maternity leave. So I think that this is very welcome. Deputy Function also had decisions to make as a TD and mother and believes Minister for Justice Helen McEntee's circumstances should start a wider debate on why this is the case. 
I had two elections where I was pregnant and I would have definitely considered uh, calling it a day just to do with the juggle of family life and the job. It does need to be something that needs to look be looked at broader and to ensure then that the system works, that they do get a proper maternity leave and it's not just like a maternity leave on paper. Whatever discussion emerges from the current debate will be watched closely by younger women in politics, including Green Party Cahirlock for Dunleary Ratdown County Council, Una Power. I think it's a really welcome step in the short term, but I think in the long term, a lot more still needs to be done. And this isn't a sustainable step. It's very much an ad hoc approach. And whilst that's very welcome for the minister, we need to look at approaches that will allow for ministers, TDs, councillors to have ways to plan and organise their lives when they're expecting babies. You know, we commit as councillors to five-year terms, as TDs, it's an up to five-year term. It's a lot of time and it is a big impact in those kind of years of 20s, 30s. We really need to be looking at constitutional reviews on how to bring about a sustainable and long-term solution. And that was Councillor Una Power ending Fiacra O'Kiony's report and we can expect to hear more on all of those issues uh, when the Citizens' Assembly uh, considers it. Well, the fallout for Davy following the central bank 4.13 million euro fine over the 2014 bond deal continues. Three senior members at Davy resigned, as you know, at the weekend, while the National Treasury Management Agency yesterday withdrew the firm's authority to act as a primary dealer in Irish government bonds. The stockbroker has now closed its bond desk. Today, the issue will be centre stage when the central bank appears before the Oireachtas Committee on Finance. Our reporter, Fiercro Kiana, has been speaking to some members of that committee ahead of today's hearing. How many more people involved, how much money was made in the deal and indeed has it been returned to employers from the central bank? I want to know what actions can they take, what actions will they take because I think this is an issue that's an example for the entire industry and we need to show we have full transparency and full clarity. The central bank will today answer questions from TDs and senators at the Oireachtas Joint Committee on Finance, Public Expenditure and Reform. Among the questioners will be Finnegal TD for Dublin Ratdown, Neil Richmond. Deputy Richmond says the decision by the National Treasury Management Agency to withdraw Davies' authority to act as a primary dealer for Irish government bonds means more answers are now needed on what happened at the company. It's a fairly major move by the NTA. It has a massive knock-on effect for the Irish economy and indeed our entire uh, system when it comes to bonds and treasury management. And what's very important to know is what are the medium and long-term effects of this ruling. Mick Barry is Solidarity People Before Profit TD for Cork North Central and will also attend today's meeting. He says the legacy of the Celtic Tiger crash means while specific details should be examined, the committee will also need to take a wider view of events. We've seen what happened at Anglo more than a decade ago. We've seen what's happened at Davy here. I think you'd be very naive to think this culture of entitlement, this feeling that we are untouchable, is confined to a couple of corners of the world of high finance. A third committee member is Fianna Fáil TD for Dublin Bay South, Jim O'Callaghan. Deputy O'Callaghan says in addition to Deputy Barry and Deputy Richmond's concerns, the central bank also needs to answer questions about its own actions. I'll be asking them why it hasn't invoked the powers the Oireachtas gave it for the protection of investors to apply to the High Court for the appointment of inspectors to investigate whether there were similar types of transactions. 
I'll be asking why it never instituted proceedings against individuals or the corporate entity for what were serious breaches of regulations. I'll be asking what sanction the central bank imposed on the person in Davy who misled Davy compliance. In fact, I'd like to know what sanction the Davy board imposed on that person when it first became aware of it. And finally, I'll be asking how a regulated entity can deliberately provide misleading information to the central bank during an investigation, and the central bank views that merely as an aggravating factor. Davy obviously plays a very important part in Irish financial services. It needs to get its house in order, and the central bank also needs to answer questions. A fourth committee member is Sinn Féin TD for Galway West, Mairead Farrell. Deputy Farrell says the Davy controversy shows a culture shift is needed in the financial sector, but that a shift can only happen if questions are fully answered by the individuals involved. Cultural change simply won't happen unless there is personal accountability. And what I will be raising with the central bank is what investigation be taking place in terms of the 16 individuals? Have they, for example, sent files to the Gardaí? Um, and I want to know, are the central bank going to do a wider investigation to find out if this is a once-off or if this is indeed a wider issue? And I'd like to know if the other 13 individuals have remained in leadership positions, if they have potentially moved to other positions in other bodies, potentially in public bodies. We need to have these kind of answers from the central bank. A number of questions there being posed by legislators who are on the Oireachtas Finance Committee, which will uh, be convening today and the central bank appearing before them. Here to tell us more, our business editor, Will Goodbody. Uh, Will, let's talk first of all about this move by the NTMA yesterday to remove Davies authority to act as a primary dealer of Irish government bonds. Uh, more answers needed, Neil Richmond was saying in that uh, clip with Fiercra O'Kiana. Uh, what is the significance of that decision? Well, Mary, it was a big deal in a number of ways. I mean, the NTMA is responsible for managing Ireland's national debt. And when it goes to borrow on the international market, uh, it uses 15 primary dealers who essentially market and find buyers for those bonds. Now, Davy was one of those, uh, the only Irish-owned one, and has been acting in this role for quite some time. And it was important for two reasons. I suppose, first, there was an element of prestige to it. It uh, could use this as a marketing tool for itself when trying to win new clients and business by saying, look, you know, we act on behalf of the Irish government. So it was a sort of a badge of honour, I suppose. But it was also quite a lucrative arrangement because even though there was no remuneration from the state attached to being a primary dealer, it did enable Davy to get involved in much larger Irish government bond deals. Uh, these are known as syndications. And through this, it was able to make quite significant amounts of fee income each year. Uh, but what the NTMA said yesterday was essentially that it no longer wished to do, to do business with Davy as it feared the potential for the central bank findings in the Davy investigation could do damage to Ireland's reputation. And so that means that Davy won't be able to take part in Thursday's upcoming bond auction of up to 1.5 billion euro in bonds or subsequent auctions for that matter. Now, that shouldn't be a huge issue for the state as, as such in terms of next Thursday's auction because... Mm. As I say, there are 14 other primary dealers, although none of those are now Irish-owned brokers and banks any longer. But overall, the decision amounts to a huge kick in the teeth for Davy, not only financially, but also in relation to its reputation. And you'd have to wonder if that's what the NTMA thinks of Davy. What are all its other customers, including large companies here, thinking? And what might they do in response? And for Davy, the crisis goes on. More questions being posed today, uh, yesterday, closing the bond desk after the N NTMA decision. Um, 
Will that be enough, though? Does it need to go further? Does it need to answer questions before a finance committee and more? Yeah, well, I mean, certainly um, Davy has been severely criticised by the central bank uh, or since the central bank issued its findings and, and fine yesterday. And, and first of all, Davy didn't issue any public statement initially until it came under pressure to do so from politicians. It then took four days before we saw any resignations with the chief executive, deputy chairman and heads of bonds stepping down. And by this stage, the unanswered questions were mounting about the other 13 members of the consortium and whether they still worked there. So after the NTMA announced yesterday that, that it was ditching Davy, uh, there then came a statement from the stockbroker to say that on foot of the central bank's findings and the NTMA's decision, it had decided to close its bond desk with immediate effect. It said this would result in four redundancies and the decision now means that none of the 16 members of the consortium who took part in the 2014 transaction at issue in this case were working for it any longer. So clearly an attempt by the board and the management team led by the new interim chief executive Bernard Byrne to draw a line in the sand on this issue. But I think it's very clear that the issues aren't going to go away anytime soon. There are Still many issues to be answered around individual accountability, about what happens to the shares in the business owned by those who have left, and also what else might the ongoing internal inquiry at Davy find, uh, and how will other clients act following the NTMA's decision yesterday. Questions too for the central bank as posed there by, by Jim O'Callaghan. Uh, what are we expecting from that appearance at the Oireachtas Committee today? Yeah, well, technically they're coming in to discuss banking matters, but I think we can expect the session will be dominated by the Davies situation. We heard earlier what those members of the committee feel need to be addressed, but for the central bank's part, I think we can expect a robust defence of its actions to date around enforcement generally, and in this case in particular. And in her opening statement given to the committee, the Director of Financial Conduct, Dover Rowland, says the reprimand and fine imposed on Davy reflected the serious regulatory breaches and aggregating factors in the investigation, including the firm's lack of candour when first reporting the matter to the central bank. She also tells the committee that robust enforcement action is a critical component of the central bank's work to protect consumers and investors and key parts of its regulatory and supervisory toolkit. But her statement also says that notwithstanding the strong suite of existing enforcement powers the bank has, it does believe that the regulatory framework requires further strengthening with regard to individual accountability and that the bank uh, regards the individual accountability framework, including the introduction of conduct standards for individuals and this uh, talked about a lot in the last couple of days, the senior executive accountability regime as necessary enhancements uh, to its supervisory and enforcement toolkit. Just separately, Mary, um, the committee uh, also wrote to Davy earlier this week to seek information and answers. And yesterday, interim CEO Bernard Byrne wrote back to the committee and he outlined the steps that have been taken since the letter was sent, including the senior resignations at the weekend, the closure of the bond desk yesterday, the appointment of him as new uh, interim CEO and that the Davy board now comprises executive and non-executive directors who were not there in 2014. But he also said, and an interesting said, that an independent third party will be appointed imminently aimed at conducting a review of matters arising from the central bank's findings in ensuring uh, appropriate assessment of other relevant activity and to determine the adequacy of enhanced compliance controls and governance designed to prevent possible conflicts. So, so an independent person to be appointed right. there. He also echoed the board's unequivocal apology and regret saying the company is truly sorry. Okay, Will, you'll be reporting throughout the day our business correspondent, Will Goodbody. You're listening to Morning Ireland. Police in the south of England who've been searching for a woman who's been missing for the past week have found human remains. The discovery was made in a wooded area in Kent. 
33-year-old Sarah Everard disappeared while walking home from a friend's house in London. A serving police officer has been arrested on suspicion of murder. Last night, the head of London's Metropolitan Police, Cressida Dick, described the shock within the force at the officer's arrest. The news today that it was a Metropolitan Police officer who was arrested on suspicion of Sarah's murder has sent shockwaves and anger through the public and through the Met. I speak on behalf of all my colleagues when I say that we are utterly appalled at this dreadful, dreadful news. The head of London's Metropolitan Police, Cressida Dick, we're joined on the line now by Sky News senior reporter Enda Brady, who's been covering Sarah Everard's disappearance. Enda, thanks for joining us. What's known about last night's discovery? So all day yesterday, police in Kent searched two locations. There was a property in the town of Deal, which is a small seaside town just north of Dover. Um, There was frenzied police activity there, a lot of forensic work going on. They put up metal sheeting to to keep prying eyes away from what they were doing. They had a forensics tent in the front garden and they removed two vehicles, one of them uh, a large black Sayat estate vehicle, they were taken away on low loaders for further examination. So that was a a family property in Deal in Kent. Then about a 40-minute drive away outside the town of Ashford in Kent, there was a wooded area, a lot of police activity and searching going on there. And it was in that area that police found human remains yesterday afternoon. Now, no confirmation that they are the remains of Sarah Everard, but I think the fact that the Met Police Commissioner came out and made that statement, we can we can join up the dots. And I think, you know, awful, awful news. The fact that it went from a missing persons inquiry to the news coming through yesterday afternoon that the man arrested on suspicion of kidnap uh, had been rearrested on suspicion of murder. If the body is that of Sarah Everard, it was found a long, long way from where she disappeared. Yeah, geographically, this makes no sense. People have been trying to figure this out. Um, it's extraordinary, really. Clapham in southwest London, where she was last seen, a CCTV image taken from one of those ringer doorbell uh, devices. So Clapham in southwest London, 9pm Wednesday last week. She was walking back to Brixton in south London. Two miles should have taken her about 45 minutes uh, maximum. And then, you know, Kent is a completely different. It's a rural area where the body was found in the woodland outside Ashford. Makes no sense at all. It is a long, long way from where she was last seen. So people have been trying to to work out what happened, how someone could simply vanish off the face of the earth. You know, there was no reports of any uh, scream or any struggle, no sighting of any uh, altercation or incident. Uh, It makes no sense. What we know so far makes no sense whatsoever. What more can you tell us about the man who's been arrested? He's in his 40s and it has been confirmed because the Metropolitan Police have told us this, that he is one of their own. He is a serving Metropolitan Police officer. He was working in the Diplomatic Protection Squad. So he was an armed officer who would have been quite used to patrolling embassies in and around central London, uh, protection of of diplomats. Uh, We know that he is 48 years of age, a serving Metropolitan Police officer, um, and the woman then was arrested on suspicion of assisting an offender. So two people in custody, uh, they were questioned yesterday, and I would imagine in the next couple of hours, detectives will begin questioning them again.
Looking at some of Cressida Dick's comments last night, she also said it's incredibly rare for a woman to be abducted from the streets, but that people, and particularly women, may be feeling understandably worried and scared. This has really reignited the debate about women's safety, hasn't it? It has, and I thought it was quite noticeable yesterday on social media. You know, a lot of people make a decision. You know, I read a lot of the social media posts yesterday, um, women just pointing out that, you know, a split-second decision, do I walk down that alleyway, do I cut through this park, you know, what if I go for a run down there? Um, it, it really has, and I think people have been very, very worried and concerned, and it has sparked quite a debate, certainly online here, about women's safety, and, you know, I noticed a lot of comments coming back from men in particular saying, well, how should we change our behaviour to make you feel more safe? But I think it it obviously has hit home uh, that element of the debate yesterday because for the commissioner to come out and make a statement like she did last night, um, it's almost unprecedented. Enda, thanks very much for joining us this morning. Enda Brady there, senior reporter with Sky News. COVID-19 vaccination continues this week. Older and more vulnerable people are still the priority, along with healthcare workers and frontline staff. But what's the plan for some of the more marginalised groups in society, such as those living in homeless accommodation and members of the travelling community? Angus Cox reports. It's not out long enough for us to know, are we safe enough to let people inject small amounts of corona into us? Do you get what I'm saying? I'll say to you, we know this is a really serious disease. We have this vaccine that we haven't, aren't sure, but we're fairly certain it's safe. Dr Austin O'Carroll debating the COVID-19 vaccine with Mary, a patient at his drop-in clinic for the homeless in Dublin. Dr O'Carroll is the HSE's clinical lead for the COVID homeless response in the Dublin region. And when it comes to engaging with patients about the vaccine, he favours a personal approach. It's the personal element between the staff and between the doctors talking to the clients which is what will really drive it. People understand the seriousness of the illness. Um, some of them get worried about the effects of the vaccine and so they don't fully understand how effective vaccines have been in the past in clearing diseases. Smallpox, in the 100 years before it was eradicated, caused 300 million deaths. A vaccine eradicated it. I think they need to have the confidence that I am willing to take the vaccine, that I've gone through the same rationalisation process. So once they understand that I'm willing to do it and I've, got, I've thought it through and they understand the things that I've had to think through as well, I do think the vast majority come on board and do it. This approach seems to be working, with Mary, who is currently homeless and staying in a hostel, now comfortable about taking the vaccine. At first I was like, no way, why would you inject coronavirus into me? Dr. Austin, like, when he sat me down and he explained things properly, I'm all for it now. I don't think we get as much information and stuff as other people would. Well, for me, I have my phone and my Google and stuff, but if I want to know something really, like today, Dr. Austin, my key worker, but mostly my key workers then, they get kind of stuck and they're like, okay, go to Dr. Austin. So, yeah, Dr. Austin, he's my superman. So, what does the vaccine rollout plan look like for the homeless? Firstly, we have a plan ready to roll out. So we have a number of organisations, SafetyNet, GMQ, DePaul, McVerry, Simon, ALDP, who are all ready to roll out with teams 
of doctors and nurses to one go vaccinate people in hostels but also they can come here to the drop-ins to get vaccinated as well as well as with their own gps so they have three possibilities of getting vaccinated and the idea is if they don't go to their own gps or don't come in here we get them in the hostels in the mornings or the evenings when they're there and we've done this with the flu vaccine for up to 15 years at this stage so we are experts in doing this the key issue is that we need to be able to vaccinate everybody at the same time if we have to go out and vaccinate people of a certain age with conditions and then come back a few weeks later to another group that's going to be incredibly messy in terms of rollout and i also think will cause problems amongst the clients because they'll say why are you getting it and we're not getting it hi angus welcome this is the safety net community assessment hub like with homeless people, the rollout of the vaccine to other marginalised groups is likely to differ from the mainstream approach. My name's Angela Skuse. I'm a GP and the Medical Director of SafetyNet Primary Care. SafetyNet is a charity that provides health care to um, people who couldn't otherwise access it. Different groups really have, have different ideas and different, different approaches to the vaccine. So some of the groups we've been working with are, have been the travelling community. SafetyNet knew that the groups that we work with would not be, be well served by the, the mainstream services that were set up for COVID. We set up a testing centre with a mobile testing unit that would go out to them. We set up a community assessment hub and then a, a COVID cluster response team. The travelling community have had very high rates, but we've had very good engagement from them going out. From our conversations with them, I think that they would be, in general, have a high uptake of the vaccine. The question is getting it to them. However, Safety Net's engagement with another group, the Roma community, highlights the possible challenges when it comes to administering the vaccine among these groups. Well, the vulnerable Roma people that we work with have a great fear of the vaccine. A lot of them um, have had bad experiences with, with healthcare in the countries that they come from. There's lots of misinformation going around that the vaccine will cause infertility, that it'll cause ch their children to be born deformed. There's particular rumours about a microchip being implanted with the vaccine. So various groups have done a lot of work um, in preparing education material in a way that, th that they can access it. Are you confident that when the time comes for the Roman community, for the travelling community, for migrant workers to get the vaccine, that uptake will be at a high level where you want it to be? I think so. I think there are signs already that uh, people's attitudes are changing and improving. Part of that is due to, to the great work on education that's being done. And it's people who really know what they're doing. They're providing culturally specific information in a way that's accessible to people. Dr. Angela Skuse from SafetyNet ending that report by Angus Cox. Police in Australia are offering a $250,000 reward for information about an Irishman who went missing in the Northern Territory more than three years ago. Patrick Paddy Moriarty was last seen in the town of Larima and police believe he's been murdered. The case has been the subject of a hugely popular podcast in Australia, Lost in Larima, and generated global headlines. At the beginning of the story, co-host of the podcast, Kylie Stevenson, meets a man called Cookie. Cookie lives in this speck of a town called Larimer in Outback Australia. Only 12 people live here and most of them are in their 70s. But it's not quite true that there's nothing going on here. We've only been in Cookie's house two minutes. We're literally still setting up the recorder when... Well, there's not much going on around here. Well, if you've got 
And Kylie joins us now. Good morning, Kylie. Thanks for taking our call today. No problem. Thanks for having me. Set the scene for us first. Tell us a little bit more about Larimer. Larimer is about 500 kilometres south of Darwin, which is the capital of the Northern Territory. Uh, It's a very small town. It's only, usually the population hovers around 10. When Paddy was living there, it was about 12. Uh, There's just a, a pub and a handful of people. Most of them are sort of retirees who've moved there for the peace and quiet um and there's yeah there's not a lot going on there these days um and what do you know of what happened to paddy Paddy moriarty so paddy was last seen at the larimar hotel on the 16th of december 2017 he um he spent most of you know most days he would go over to the pub and have a drink and and have a yarn with his friends who were around and he did that on the on the 16th of December and then he jumped on his quad bike with his dog Kelly drove over the road to his house and he was never seen again you met him is that right yeah that's correct I was in Larimer about a year before he went missing uh, I spent two weeks there on a riding retreat and uh, and yeah I'd sort of venture out of my room most afternoons and have a drink in the bar and and Patty was always there so yeah, I'd, I'd often have a bit of a bit of a chat with him. Now he, he was from here originally. Uh, he was. Um, tell us a little bit more about about what you learned about him and, and how he ended up in Australia and in that particular part of Australia. Yeah. So what we know is that he was born in Abbeyfield in Ireland, and he came over to Australia in 1967 when he was about 19 years old. Uh, from an interview we've actually only been recently given by a friend of his uh, had recorded him a few years ago talking about his past. Uh, we learned that he came straight to Darwin on a boat, uh, uh, was picked up by the people that he was working for on a cattle station uh, in the Northern Territory. That, that job was arranged before he left Ireland and uh, he spent about, I think, more than a decade, probably, uh, you know, closer to two or three decades working down on that particular cattle station. And then, you know, the rest of his life was spent working around the Northern Territory doing various things. Why do police believe he was murdered, Kylie? I think the big indicator was that his dog was also missing. So there was an extensive search for Paddy when uh, his, his disappearance was reported to police. Um, there was no sign of him. He was definitely a creature of habit. He did the same kind of things every day, you know, walked his dog in a particular area of the town, went to the pub. Um, so all of those areas were searched where he could possibly have walked. And, you know, obviously initially they sort of suspected it could be a medical episode or something like that because he was in his, he was 70 actually when he went missing. Um, but after they searched the area extensively and couldn't find any indication of him, they realised that something else must have been going on. And once they started investigating, they did find out that um, the town of Larimer has a lot of uh, rifts in it. Uh, there's a lot of people who don't like one another. And, you know, Paddy was caught up in, in some of those problems there. Why do you think his story and his disappearance have attracted such attention? I think it's just one of those outback mysteries where people like to have an opinion on what they think happened. And I think also all of the possibilities are just absurd. You know, they're talking, 
you know, when police were looking, they were talking about sinkholes. It's it's an area where there are sinkholes and caves, whether he could have fallen into one or whether his body has been hidden in one. Um, there are death adders in that area. There are uh, occasionally crocodiles, not... That's not entirely true. There's a pet crocodile at the pub, but um, there are occasionally when in, in flood times, there are crocodiles around as well. Um, so I guess because there are so many unusual possibilities, it's really kind of gripped a lot of people around the world. Kylie Stevenson, thank you very much for speaking to us from Darwin this morning. Kylie's podcast is Lost in Larima on the disappearance of Irishman Paddy Moriarty in the Northern Territory just over three years ago. An overhaul of the CAO system for college entry will see apprenticeships and further education included in a new connected structure. The new process is part of a three-year plan to be announced by Simon Harris, Minister for Further and Higher Education, later this morning. Now, the revamped strategy is being spearheaded by the state agency SOLAS. Its chief executive is Andrew Brownlee. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning, Mary. So, if if I was a, a student uh, doing leaving cert in twenty twenty two, because this is when the change will all start, uh, what is going to change for me? Whether I'm applying for an apprenticeship or a a, a more traditional third level entry like engineering or uh, arts or education. Well, I think I think first of all, Mary, it's important to to think about why we're doing this. I think we we currently have a situation where two-thirds of school leavers go directly into higher education. We even have some schools where that's the case for 100% of leavers with a much smaller proportion choosing a further education course or an apprenticeship. I suppose we have a strong sense that those types of options would suit a much bigger base of school leavers, but they need the tools to make the smarter choices. And that's really what this is about. I think there's two aspects to this. One is making sure that they have all the information to hand about all of the further education, higher education, apprenticeship options and there's a great new initiative called the right course that's been launched by the minister to do that but secondly and this is really the crux of it when young people are at that decision point on what to do next talking to teachers parents guidance counselors that obviously revolves around CAO time and we have to find a way to put in place a a system that puts those further education options on the table at exactly the same time either via the CAO itself or, as you mentioned, a a kind of parallel and connected system. So are you designing here a a single portal? I I think that would be the the, the ideal ultimate goal, Mary. Um, We're obviously very conscious that CAO is a private independent company with its own board. We're very conscious that education and training boards that provide those further education options are independent education providers. But but really what we want to make sure is the system is as simple as possible for the school leaver so that they can see all of the options that are available when they're making that that decision about the future of their lives and their careers and and their study plans. And so we want to get as close to a central portal as possible along the line. So will the students have that clarity from 2022? And what are you going to do about uh, governance and, and who's actually going to run the system? Well, I tell you, what we can promise people by 2022 is that they will have a much clearer sense of what their further education options are and what all the great options across apprenticeship are, you know, as part of the, the kind of the, 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 as part of the kind of decision process in terms of what you do when you, you leave school. So as I say, it's a complex process. There's an awful lot of work to do with partners like the CAO and the, the education providers. Um, but we believe, you know, there's a real 
strong ambition here. Um, it's, it's something that society in Ireland needs, and you know we're committed to working with those, those partners to, to make it happen. Are we out of step with some of our, our European neighbours in terms of access to, to further, uh, further education? We have, we have a significant dropout rate from, from university, even uh, higher uh, at IT level. And is this part of trying to address those numbers? Yeah, I, I mean, the, thing, the first thing to say is we have an excellent higher education system and that's internationally respected. But in terms of the balance between the role of further education and apprenticeship and higher education, we are a little bit out of kilter. But, but one thing I would say, Mary, is it's not an either-or choice. I think, you know, we have really strong evidence now that if you do a further education course first and then progress into higher education, you have a much better chance of finishing your degree than if you go in straight into higher ed, you know, with maybe 300, 350 points. So that's how we need to start thinking about the system. You know, we need to think about models perhaps where you, you start your degree in a further education college and then progress on to, to a university or an IOT to kind of finish your degree, you know. And that will certainly very much bring us into more into line with, with some of those international models. And I think set us up to meet the needs of the future world of work, which are going to need much more kind of focus on technical and, and vocational type skills. All right, Andrew, thank you very much. Andrew Brownlee there from the state agency Solace. Now, anyone who's ever had a missing pet will know how worrying and stressful it can be. And last Monday, we heard from one pet owner who was particularly worried about his pet, Caelan. Caelan had been missing for a number of days and John Nugent was really worried that Caelan wouldn't be able to survive alone in the wild or even that he could be shot because Caelan is a rather magnificent looking golden eagle. John Nugent, good morning to you. Good morning, Anya. How are you? Well, happy I'm, Friday. I'm grand. Happy Friday for you, indeed. You found Caelan. I did. And you know what? Thanks for the media and everything that's done it. They helped me find him. And the amount of support I got from the radio is the amount of support from social media. And I have sightings of Ockram, Avoca, Arklow, British Bay, Coins Cross. They were, Caelan was there. The pictures the people have been in touch and told me he was there. And the professional people from the likes of uh, Adair Manor, Willie Ford, kept bringing me. He said, walk the same path every day, morning and night. He'll come back. He knows where he's being fed. He's a clever bird. And yesterday afternoon, on the eighth day, there's the bird sitting on the tree where I walked the path the same morning. And there he was sitting there. And what happened? Uh, what did you do when you uh, saw him? Well, <laughs> I can't say a grown man crying, but I was so excited. It was unreal. So I thought he was on the tree. Now, we were slightly caught on the tree, and as Jesse saw when I whistled up to him, he whistled back. The minute I got up, got him down out of the tree, put him on the hand, and he wouldn't release. He just held onto my hand all the way back, and everybody's saying he hasn't eaten for eight days. I think he might have eaten, because he'd, but I got him back, and I was glad to get him up and brought him back to us, Avery. And you sent us in a couple of pictures, John, and you, know, you, you said about the tears. Well, all I can say is the smiles and the photographs you sent us. And even Caelan, I mean, I can't tell much about a golden eagle's expression, oh, sure. but he looks a bit happy to me. <laughs> but come here, most important, thanks for everybody for helping, because I would have lost. And you just kept me focused and kept me going with all the support. And the amount of people took time out of the day and walked extra fields and looked at extra trees. I was, I was just blown away for the people. I was just really blown. And now it's, 
I suppose Caelan belongs to the people now because they've helped me find him, you know. <laughs> so how's Caelan settling down? Have you got Fantastic. his tracking device back on? And well, you, right, I mean, you would you want him to train him? I put him in his Avery last night and I walked out of the Avery. He jumped straight to the front door to see where I was going. And I ah. went back into the Avery and sat in the ground with him for a couple of minutes while he sat on his bow perch. Oh, and he didn't uh, want to see you go. He just didn't want to see me going. Like, where are you going? You left me already. Or <laughs> so, I know you're planning to train him to fly free, I, but I it keep, sounds yeah, like yeah, he well, doesn't want, want to. <laughs> yes, I want to f- train him to fly. So He's already had the first flight. It was like worrying about a teenager not coming home. Is that what they say? Going out and drinking. Oh, yeah, <laughs> he was out <I> partying. <laughs> <laughs> but he's, he, he's home and he's safe. Well, that's and great he, he news. he fed well and he's happy. And actually, uh, those pictures of yourself and Caelan, John, uh, we've put them up uh, on our accounts, our social media accounts. So I encourage people to have a look because the smile would cheer you up, John. Anyway, thank you so much for joining us and the best of luck to you and Caelan. And thanks again for everything, okay? Okay, good luck. Bye, bye, bye. You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.